my mind leadership is the realization that there's a challenge or an opportunity that's far, far greater than the scope of any one person's talents or resources. And that when you can get people to work together, roughly moving in the same direction, you know, somewhat aligned, somewhat oriented similarly, uh, then that's when the challenge is going to be met. This is the Anatomy of a Jewish Leader, a show of meaningful conversations with Jewish leaders that delves not only into their minds, but into their hearts. I'm Jonathan Frieden, and that voice that you heard at the beginning was Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. He's a chaplain at NYU, the executive director of the Bronfman Center, and is probably now most notably known for being the chief rabbi of the Jewish community of the United Arab Emirates. This was really a fascinating conversation to be able to see into leadership and, and, and expanding the Jewish community into a whole new part of the world. I hope that you enjoy our conversation and learn just as much as I did. Without further ado, here's our talk. Okay, Rabbi Sarna, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so just to, to start off, uh, I know that you're, you're a native of Montreal, you went to Shivat Haratzion, and then to YU, where you got your BA and you got Samicha, you got ordained as a rabbi. Did you always know that you wanted to be a rabbi? And uh, did, you always, did you already have some sort of vision for what type of rabbi you wanted to become? You know, I um, I never really knew exactly what I wanted to be. I'm not the kind of person who uh, you could ask, where do you like to be in 10 years? In fact, that's always the interview question that I, I, I shudder to answer and continue to. So I'm not exactly a planner. Um, uh, I knew that I wanted to do something which would have an impact on the world. Um, and um, for a time I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. I fell in love with a psychologist. So uh, who told me that she was gonna be the psychologist in the relationship <laughs> and, that, uh, and that she thought I would be half decent as a rabbi. So why don't I pursue that? I also around the same time during my courtship with my future wife, with my bride, I uh, also was asking around different people for their advice in life. And um, uh, an English literature professor at YU, Frank Pausenthal, had a really good piece of advice. He said, if you're having trouble projecting into the future, uh, just take a look back on your life and think about the times, the points in time when you felt like you were doing what you were born to do, when you felt like the most in flow when you felt like um, if time would stop, you'd be perfectly happy doing what you're doing. And um, and I look back and I thought about moments at Camp uh, Mosheva, I thought about moments in Yeshiva, and I realized that I love learning, I love helping people, I love creating community, particularly when people's imagination could be unleashed as is the case with children. And uh, I felt like by pursuing um, 
something in the rabbinate, I would have the maneuverability to, we to go in and out, to weave in and out of those different modalities. So Professor Thal's advice was, if you look back, find those points, connect the dots, and then the next step should be obvious. But for, for many of my, the, you know, the early years until, I think until I had three or four kids, so we had three or four kids, uh, I was basically planning, you know, we were doing one year at a time. I started at NYU when I, in 2002, I was 24. And um, it, it felt right, felt like a unique spot. It's a special opportunity in those years to, to build community. And I, I certainly was enthralled by uh, Greenwich Village, the heart of New York City, Washington Square Park, uh, NYU Jewish students coming in from all over the country, so many different kinds of different Jewish identities. And I felt like it was the right place. Yeah, for I, I for sure hear that. And, and I, I think it was really interesting to hear also the discussion about the maneuverability within the field of the rabbinate. I know that on uh, on September 11, 2001, you were interning at HIR, uh, and at a young age, you were asked to go into the, all the craziness and, and be a support for the rescue workers. Uh, you wrote about this in the Times of Israel in a, in a really fascinating article, uh, and you concluded with a line that really stood out to me, which was that perhaps that was my destiny, to be a rabbi in spaces where no script has yet been written. Can you talk about what this experience was like, that quote, and how it shaped you moving forward? I mean, I feel so indebted to Rabbi Avi Weiss for having created the, uh, the learning opportunity uh, for me, in the, in just, even in that year. I mean, it was a, a, a multiple years with Rabbi Weiss as a mentor, but particularly that year when I was working at the Hebrew Institute and, um, and particularly around 9-11. What did I mean? I mean, uh, I went with Rabbi Weiss to Ground Zero and I just, I was listening, I was, learning, I was absorbing. Uh, I, I, I don't know what I can, I don't think I contributed very much being there, except in the way that it's uh, made such a deep impression on me that it became a foundational experience. It's, it was a well to which I can continue to go back to for inspiration. Um, seeing just the, the loftiest, most raw, human desire to help each other regardless of any kind of um, identity boundary that may otherwise exist uh, will stay with me forever. Um, so the experience of, for example, um, at one moment when we were down there, there was uh, a concern that one of the other buildings might fall over and and there was a stampede, you know, something of a stampede. I mean, thankfully nobody was hurt as a result, but we were all just running in the same direction and, or different directions, but running away from the same spot. And, um, and so I, I guess seeing humanity, it's one of its most vulnerable and also one of its most collaborative moments 
um, that was something that uh, that was a foundation for me. So that was so that it felt like there was no script. I mean, Rabbi Weiss at that point was seasoned. You know, he had spent other time in uh, in disaster, um, you know, response to disasters. Something which, really, as a result of that experience, I I, uh, I committed myself to do more of. And over the next, uh, I guess, decade and a half, you know, I've, I've found myself in those kind of moments, whether in response to mass school shootings, natural disasters, etc. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I, I don't get like parachuted into any special disaster situations. I know I'm nothing more than a civilian in any of those instances, but one of the main things I learned from um, from that experience is just how important it is to to bear witness, to kind of to be there pr presently. You know, to be to to allow that part of your brain, which is just seems like it's recording everything, uh, to record, and then to somehow process it and to share that story, and to allow others to participate through storytelling story listening um and then and then for that to be something of a point of connection or a silver lining in a story which otherwise uh, is full of disaster and human suffering and and i found it to be a really empowering story to so many people especially young people who in moments of crisis or disaster feel like they want to make a difference and and uh feel like they want to be that bridge that point of connection between uh, a moment of uh, and a place of disaster and everyone else who's outside the bubble of that disaster. And, um, and what I've seen from taking students with me to these various um, situations is that, um, is that it changes their life. It changes their life. And, uh, and for many other people in turn, it's been the touch point it's been there well for inspiration and in them doing good work that they do. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And it's amazing that you've been able to take cases of disaster and turn it into a learning experience in some way. Um, I know that one of the things that you already mentioned briefly or earlier on was that you, you became the chaplain at NYU and the executive director of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life in 2002. I'm sure those jobs entail so much, and I can imagine that no job description would properly encapsulate them. I'm curious to hear a little bit, what have you found the students need from you the most? Or rather, in what way do you feel you can have the biggest impact on them? Um, the way I can have the biggest impact, I think, is is enabling them to create a sense of, of community, to, you know, to be there for each other, to be, um, you know, to create the kind of community which is inclusive, which is purpose-driven, where people feel organically that just by being a part of it, they uh, become better versions of themselves. But that's the, the key word really is community. It's not, you know, it's not, not so much things that they're looking from me, it's really things that they're looking for from each other that I can help, you know, create the conditions for. And look, I've been very, very blessed to have so many relationships with special people who, you know, from their college years have gone on to do just the most amazing things. 
And I take such pride and such delight anytime I, uh, I, I see people years later who are, who are, you know, whether it's in the context of their families, their communities, or their public service, or their professional careers. I mean, I just, I get such joy and such pride in it. Um, so, and, and sometimes they say, you know, I remember when you, you know, we had that walk around Washington Square Park and I talked through this issue or that issue. I mean, even though people will sometimes point to conversations with me as being, having been very meaningful, I know that ultimately it's because that one conversation was embedded within, uh, within a, a, a student community, which otherwise held people during this years, to help, help people in their dreams and help them in their aspirations and also through their struggles. It's, it's very, rare, very, very, very rare that uh, as a result of one speech, one conversation, one moment, um, that, that uh, someone's life will be altered. It's really about the, the way that that, um, that encounter uh, has been embedded within a, a, a social matrix, a community that is, uh, enables people to grow and to become the best version of themselves. The other thing I would say is that really together with Michelle, my wife, uh, who's a psychologist at SAR Academy, uh, having our home open to literally, uh, I don't know, about a thousand students a year, not during pandemic times, but before, I mean, we just, we have so many people come through our, our apartment. Uh, some people are students, some people are friends of students, some people are just visiting New York. I mean, all different kinds and, and all different kinds. And we always try to bring them into contact with people who they otherwise would not have an opportunity to meet. And um, so whether those are, are diplomats or business leaders or great Rabbanim, also very, so privileged to have great rabbis and scholars for our home. And um, and look, when people come into your home, there's an immediate, immediate unforgettable connection. You know, they, they, they read everything about you just by looking at your home. And, um, and, and that, that experience is worth, uh, you know, a thousand meetings. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that specifically stuck out to me from what you just mentioned is also the, so much of it, you know, I feel like a lot of people think about the important relationships being like that one deep, meaningful conversation, but you know how you're saying like, no, that's in the context of community and the context of a much larger relationship. So one of the, one of the other things I know that you do is you're incredibly involved, of course, in, in interfaith relationships and, and education. And so I know that you're the senior fellow at, uh, you were the senior fellow at of many for multi-faith leadership at NYU, where you're designing educational experiences and curricula to train the next generation. Um, you were also a participant in Chelsea Clinton's documentary of many and your faculty at NYU's Wagner School of Public Service. I know one of the things that you also focused on is specifically teaching stories over facts. Uh, you had a you had a quote. I was listening to your you know, the speech that you gave to uh, VBM, the Valley Vietnam Trash. You had a, one quote that I really loved. You said, uh, "You could disagree with someone's argument, but you can't disagree with someone's story." I love that. I, I'd be curious to hear more about this. If you think it's possible to train open mindedness, and if there's ever a point where you think that middle ground or connection really just isn't possible. 
you know, um, over the past few years, I've been really influenced by um, great, uh, great uh, psychologist, ethicist, philosopher, uh, feminist named Carol Gilligan. And uh, Carol's recent work, but actually the work of the past few decades has been on listening, listening. And not just listening, but what she calls radical listening, which is, uh, she says, listening to the root. And um, so she's developed a method and her point is that listening is what happens when you replace judgment with curiosity. That the way we normally navigate the world, we have our categories through which we understand the world. And then as we encounter data, we select the data that fits into the boxes that we have. And her point about listening being what happens when you replace judgment with curiosity is that true listening is when you are prepared to adopt another person's categories that is use their lenses to see the world. And one of the exercises that I've learned as part of this is, uh, is in some ways the opposite of active listening. Uh, you know, active listening, uh, the typical exercise is you say something, then I'll paraphrase it, I'll say it in my own words. A radical listening experience is when you talk for a minute, then let me try to say back what you said in exactly the same words that you used, not using my own words. It's really hard. It's really hard. And when you go through that exercise, you begin to realize just how, how natural it is to put the other person's experience into your own box, into your own boxes. And, um, and, and as I've done, started doing my, my own research on curiosity and as much as the listening is about curiosity, um, what, what surprised me about some of the psychological research on curiosity is its inverse relationship with anxiety. It's almost like the opposite of curiosity is not knowledge, it's not boredom, but the opposite of curiosity is anxiety. Anxiety is the state of mind which brings a person into themselves. And curiosity is the state of mind which brings a person outside themselves. It's the state of mind that accompanies exploration. It's the state of mind that uh, accompanies experimentation. And from a therapeutic standpoint, exercises in curiosity can actually be used therapeutically, therapeutically as a moderator of anxiety. And we live in a very anxious age. And so it's no surprise therefore that the more anxiety, the less curiosity, the less curiosity, the less listening, the less listening, the more divisiveness, the more tension, and the more we exist in, in, in echo chambers, bubbles, the more we gravitate towards people who might be geographically far, but ideologically close, people to with, whom, with whom we share a very specific language, uh, as opposed to a neighbor with whom we might have a very different language, even though we're geographically very close. So uh, I see that as one of the essential challenges that we need to work through 
you know, whether it's interfaith or interpolitics or international, we need a return to listening, which is really a return to curiosity. Yeah, it's so interesting that you were kind of also highlighting how the opposite of curiosity is anxiety. Because I never really thought about it that way. And I think that's such a fascinating way of phrasing it and how the connection between curiosity and listening. And yeah, the, the idea that, that you have to be able to, <laughs> radical listening is being able to put it, say some say it back in the other person's words. I'm like, I how would I even do that? That's so hard. Um, okay, fascinating. So so we're going to move on a little bit. Uh, although I'm, there's, of course, so, so much to, to talk about there. Uh, so in 2019, uh, you became the chief rabbi of the United Arab Emirates. First of all, amazing, and I'm sure that must have been crazy for you. Uh, what's it been like being in, in a in a leadership position in such uncharted waters? Well, when I was asked um, by the, the Jewish community to serve as chief, as the chief rabbi, uh, I didn't think it would be. A, a thing. I mean, very small Jewish community, very small, probably more people, more Jewish people in my building than there were active <laughs> members of the Jewish community in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and, uh, and, but there was this mo moment where uh, it really dawned on me. I shouldn't say dawn because dawn is a, you know, progress process. It, it was more like uh, it hit me that this role, although very small Jewish community, but this role could be much, much more than I, than I first thought. I, I was invited to speak to a group of Muslim uh, ambassadors, sorry, ambassadors from Muslim majority and Muslim countries at, uh, at the United Nations by the ambassador to uh, from the UAE to the UN, Lana Nuseba. And I met her just uh, about a month beforehand. Uh, and, um, and she said, you know, UAE, we're hosting an event with all the ambassadors from Muslim and Muslim majority countries. We want the theme to be on religious tolerance. Would you come and say a few words? So of course I agreed. And the, um, uh, the, the uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres was, was speaking and the uh, permanent representative from the Holy See, the Vatican was gonna be speaking and, uh, and I had an opportunity to say a few words. And it was just the ambassadors and I came into the room and uh, was, was also, uh, I came into the room and was also aware of the time because I, I realized I had to speak for a Yom HaShoah event later on that day. And then realized the speech that I wrote had nothing to do with the Holocaust. And yet somehow the coincidence of this date also being Yom HaShoah was one that I couldn't ignore. And so before the event started, I, I walked over to Antonio Guterres, so I did not know beforehand. And I said, you know, Mr. Secretary General, can I just talk to you for a second before the event starts? And I said, um, Today's also Yom HaShoah. Do you think I could talk about the Holocaust? And he said, not only can you, you, you have to. And uh, everybody sat down and the Secretary General spoke and Ambassador Nuseba spoke and the permanent representative from the Vatican spoke. 
And then uh, I, I scrapped the speech that I'd written before and decided to talk about how uh, one part of my wife's family was saved during World War II, saved by uh, an Arab doctor, Mohammed Halmi, who had risked his life to save one patient family, uh, Jewish patient family, it was my, one branch of my wife's family uh, in Berlin at the risk of his own life. And sure enough, Mohammed Halmi became the first and as of yet only um, Arab righteous among the Gentiles. There's many Muslims, but as far as Arab ethnicity, nationality, only one, Mohammed Halmi. Um, there should be others recognized by Yad Vashem, but as of now, there's not, there are not. And, um, and this was in the context of Pittsburgh, it was in the context of Christchurch, it was the context of Sri Lanka and other attacks on sacred spaces going on around the world. And, and uh, I told the story as a means of saying, listen, we have to all um, get together to fight hate, regardless of what our background is. And if an Arab doctor during World War II would risk his own life to save a Jewish girl, uh, arrange for her fake conversion to Islam and her fake marriage to a relative of his in Egypt so that she could procure potentially a, uh, an Egyptian passport and flee Germany, uh, then we could certainly do that for each other, are obligated to do that for each other. And uh, just recently, just a few weeks ago, this story, I felt like the story came full circle because here we are, here we were in a post uh, Abraham Accords, post 130,000 Israelis visiting United Arab Emirates as tourists in just six months, post all these things. And over Pesach, when I was there with my family, uh, I met up with, uh, with Ahmed al-Mansouri, who runs a small but mighty museum in, in Dubai, who says, hey, uh, I'd like to do a, an event for Yom HaShoah at my museum. Do you want to, you know, can we do that? And, and, uh, and uh, I went over and met two people on the staff who said, well, we just don't want to do an event. We also want to do an exhibit. And I said, well, the best exhibit we can do here in, in the Arab world, I mean, I was aware it's the first Holocaust ex exhibit to kind of take root in, uh, in a Gulf state. I said it should be a tribute to Arab upstanders, people who, who risked their life. We're Arab to save Jewish people. Um, and in fact, you know, we did the, we did the ceremony and the Yom HaShoah ceremony was the launch of this exhibition which had in it in part uh, tribute to Dr. Helmy, uh, who had saved uh, part of my wife's family. Um, so look, it, it's become much more than I thought it could be. It's not scripted, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I always operate with the awareness that I, I've, been, uh, I've been gifted with something that I don't deserve. And the only way that I can make good on its promise is to enable other people to, uh, to help, you know, take a piece of this great challenge that stands before us. And that challenge is, uh, it's not something, I don't, I don't feel like it's something that we have in full view yet. It's, uh, it's a part of the iceberg, but unquestionably the opening up of possibilities between 
uh, Jews and Arabs in a way that has not been present in the past hundred years is the, the, these doors, we have to walk through these doors. I mean, we have to, uh, American Jews, European Jews, Israelis, Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, members of Gulf states that have relations with Israel, don't have relations with Israel. We, we, we have to press the reset button and, and understand that the world is not what it was 70 years ago, 80 years ago. Uh, we're entering post-pandemic into a different era and different set of challenges and different set of opportunities. And we just have to press that reset button. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that really stood out to me from that is that you also chose to focus instead of on the challenges to the Jews specifically, you were also focusing on how people in the Muslim community in the past had helped them and kind of using that as a framework to me, to me was so interesting. Um, I know that you were already somewhat involved in the, in the UAE before you were actually the chief rabbi because you were helping start a new international branch of, of NYU. One of the things that I heard you mention in passing before, I think it might have been on Rabbi Wild's podcast, I'm not sure, uh, is that you very much understandably started off the, the first time you went to the UAE with stereotypes and biases and to a to degree almost like afraid of, of, the, of the population there um, and almost had to like deprogram yourself. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this and if you think there's ever value to stereotypes, which I know sounds a little crazy, uh, and how you went about overcoming them. Well, stereotypes are part of human being. Uh, that's the way we make sense of the world. Uh, there's no way to, uh, to operate in the world without stereotyping uh, people, places, things. It's part of who we are. Um, and also what has to be a part of who we are is always working to, uh, to counter those stereotypes, you know, to work against them. Uh, stereotypes are, stereotyping is an efficient way for human beings to navigate the world. We don't have time to get to know each and every person and, and, and kind of assess each and every person that's true when it comes to, it's not only about people, it's also about food, it's also about places, it's also about, and, and yet, um, we also, in the spirit of Pirkei Avot, have to judge everyone. The kavzchut. We also have to not judge someone until we, uh, you know, see the world through their eyes. And so it's both. It's both. It's um, recognizing the humanity in stereotypes and also the humanity in breaking those down. So I, I do. I do think a, a critical part of my work is helping. Uh, with the dismantling of stereotypes through people-to-people -people encounters, through bringing together uh, counterparts, America, Israel, UAE. Um, uh, I've been very, um, I don't know what the right word is, inspired, enlightened by, by the opportunity to help start this uh, association of Gulf Jewish communities which brings together Jews from the six GCC, the six Gulf countries, um, you know, 
uh, of different kinds, you know, they're different cultures, Jewish communities. And but even just seeing the kinds of engagement that's happening online or through social media, not to mention things that are happening in person, there is so much room for, ex for excitement and optimism, so much. Yeah, so so before we always end up concluding with the same question, and I'm I'm sure that you're strapped for time. I just have one question before we, which is the final question is always what does it mean to lead? But before jumping into that, just one last thing, I, I want to give you the opportunity. What do you think is most misunderstood about your job as the chief rabbi of the UAE, and what do you want people to know about your experience? Mm, well, a few things have been misunderstood. So you say chief rabbi of the UAE it's not a government appointment, right? So it's uh, I'm the chief rabbi technically of the Jewish Council of the Emirates. So I'm not uh, appointed by the government. I'm not paid by the government. I'm not, uh, my flights aren't subsidized by the government, neither is my hotel. I mean, it's not a government role. So um, I'm there to serve the Jewish community and to, in, in, you know, and, and to represent religiously, spiritually, the Jewish community, um, but really also to empower the Jewish community there to, um, you know, to form the special kinds of connections that it uniquely can form. Um, it's, um, <laughs> when I got to know uh, Rabbi Sachs over, the, over, you know, sadly before his, passing, you know, he spent five years as a global distinguished professor at New York University. He was in New York for about a month, a year. And, you know, when I, when I came to know him and I got to know him many different ways, he would come over for usually the Purim Suda because he was often here during Purim. I went costume shopping for him. <laughs> And, you know, many, you know, walks together. And uh, what I came to realize is that uh, my whole experience of him was through the aura. You know, you know, you see him speaking to a thousand people and you see him you know, writing his books or on his uh, on BBC radio or in documentaries or, and, and, um, and I imagine also that that uh, that there's so much. Um, well, let me say it this way. You know, I I could see people like reading articles I've written or or, or that I've been in and and as make assumptions about the nature of the work that it's all, <laughs> it's all the high points. There is a lot of you know sweat and um, hard work, you know, anguish, anxiety, frustration. Um, the work is very, 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 very hard. Very complicated and very complex. And that is, that is unlikely, you know, to be seen. Uh, but for every, you know, for every moment of, uh, you know, what, what might appear to be, uh, you know, a high point there, are, there's is countless hours in, um, in just very, very, very hard work behind the scenes. 
And um, so that's that's something I would say is people may not see on the outside, but is definitely there. Yeah. Uh, for, first of all, that sounds very challenging, even for the rewarding moments. Um, and it, it's it's nice to be able to hear a little bit of that insight because I know, like you were mentioning Rabbi Sachs, but I feel like for Jewish leaders all the time, people get to see a lot of time like their output of, of what they're kind of putting out to the world. And sometimes it's hard to know like what's all the hard work that's going into it behind the scenes. And for me, at least, I can't speak to everyone listening, but for me, at least, it, it's really, I don't, the word's not nice, but I'll use that. It's like almost nice to hear someone, just like the transparency of being like, yeah, this is really hard. <laughs> Oh my God. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like being a teacher, right? You know, for every one hour in the classroom, there are countless hours of preparation and grading and speaking out of class with a student or with parents. I mean, and, um, and like, and at heart, I'm basically, I'm a teacher. That's basically what I am. I mean, Really, who I am is I'm a camp counselor. It's what I've always loved. That's <laughs> the beginning. So I always love doing. I'm basically a camp counselor who's turned into a teacher, um, and and that's really where my heart is. And what I would say is that, um, just like in education, the way education is today, you don't. It's it's nearly impossible to trace back impact on any one person to you. You can always, always say, it's actually not because of me, it's because of the countless other teachers, parents, peer mentors, you know, friends, you know, community. There's a zillion other things that you can attribute one person's human flourishing to, except for you. And even when they say it's because of you, it may not even be because of you. You know, it might be that, you know, sometimes it's teachers or rabbis who are the most, you know, charismatic or who often create a narrative that, that takes credit for what other people do that end up getting some of the glory. It's very hard to know, nearly impossible to know what of the good that gets done is because of your work. And also you have to have faith that even as a teacher, you will be forgotten because you will be forgotten as a teacher in as much as the most authentic kind of teaching is when a student surpasses and, and to a certain extent forgets where they got whatever they're getting from. Um, you have to operate with that humility and with that faith of a teacher. Yeah. That, I know this isn't, this isn't ex extreme listening because I'm going to add a little bit of my own thing, but that sounds like you need to, it sounds like part of teaching is, is first of all, it's fascinating to hear that like, you, you, it's funny to hear that you view yourself still as like a counselor and a teacher, but it sounds like so much of that. And so such a part of that humility is, is ultimately letting go and, and realizing that, you know, it's not gonna. It's not, it's not, it's not about you. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's not about you. And as soon as it becomes about you, then, you know, you've left the domain of a teacher and, and that for me has been the anchor. Look, I could be operating in this space in a way which is a lot more aggressive, a lot more self-aggrandizing, a lot more self-promotional. And maybe it's not politically wise, but I've, I've chosen to operate in this space in which um, 
if someone else is eager to take an opportunity, I'm more than happy for them to do it. If someone else, if there's other people, you know, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm happy for everybody, you know, for, for a lot of people to enter in the space, um, you know, in, in the belief that, that, uh, that there's a very big task ahead of us. And if it just remains, remains the domain of the property of one individual or a small subset of individuals, we're not going to be successful, but if a large group of people get excited and see opportunity for themselves and for others, then the challenge will be met. So a lot of what I'm trying to do, a lot of what I'm trying to do is just to, is convene and catalyze, you know, introduce people to each other, pass on relationships, hand over contacts, create access points, create points of convening, spark interest. Um, that is really the work that I'm trying to do, which basically is being a teacher, you know, creating points of encounter, setting up chabrusas. I mean, that's, you know, uh, that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. It's trying to be that teacher. Amazing. So thank you again so much for your time. I want to just conclude with one last question, which we ask all the guests to, to conclude, which is very broadly, what does it mean to lead? Leading is not, uh, uh, um, is not the, the property of an individual. It's, um, it, it's the challenge of generation. So, um, my mind leadership is the realization that there's a challenge or an opportunity that's far, far greater than the scope of any one person's talents or resources. And that when you can get people to work together, roughly moving in the same direction, you know, somewhat aligned, somewhat oriented similarly, uh, then that's when the challenge is going to be met. So I'll get just a really, you know, concrete example. When after the Abraham Accords were signed, my first reaction was, we got to get youth of every country to meet each other. We have to have like a mass Jewish youth um, pilgrimage to the United Arab Emirates, the, which is the, you know, to meet Emiratis, uh, to break down stereotypes. I wrote this in, in a small article and tablet that no one read. And, and, uh, and initially had, had the idea of this project being something that I would dedicate my energies to. And then within a short amount of time, I realized that there were you know, so many different Israeli and American Jewish uh, civil society organizations and educational initiatives that had their own projects in mind. And that rather than me focusing on mine, uh, the best thing I could do was to bring everybody else who was trying together so that they could share resources. So if someone had, uh, someone needed money and someone needed contacts and someone needed access and someone needed expertise, they could benefit from others who had, you know, uh, who didn't have the resources that they had, but had the resources that they didn't. And uh, so I, I helped start something called the warm peace movement in as much as I found that that term warm peace was something of an organizing principle among 
many Israelis, you know, having seen the nature of the peace with Jordan, the nature of peace with Egypt, where it felt more government to government or more military to military, but much less so people to people, that the unique opportunity here with the Abraham Accords was something of a warm peace. And that that was basically the organizing principle behind what was motivating so many Israeli civil society organizations. So we created these monthly convenings where uh, we would highlight, you know, the successes of different groups where people had an opportunity to meet each other in their clusters, you know, whether people were focused on youth exchanges or interfaith activities or social media engagement or uh, public policy, what, what have you, whatever the area of engagement was where where uh, people could really uh, work together to share resources. Doesn't mean that there's not competition between, there is and there will continue to be, but uh, but at least people could get together, be inspired by, from each other, motivated by each other and move forward. So that was a real, real learning, learning experience for me, you know, to kind of step back from the one idea that I had and step into what's probably a better use of, of my time and positioning at this moment, which is uh, being a, a convener, an organizer for this super talent and ambition that so many people have. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. To stay up to date, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Anatomy of a Jewish Leader. And if you're really feeling generous, leave us a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. Uh, if you have inquiries or if you'd be interested in sponsoring a podcast, you can reach out at aoajlpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time.